Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome this morning to Faith Radio uh, and Mornings with Carmen. This is Dan Darling, uh, <clears throat> Senior Vice President at the National Religious Broadcasters, which is a, an association of Christian communicators. Uh, glad to be with you this morning <clears throat> and privileged to fill in again for Carmen, who's taking some deserved time away uh, to be with her family. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I grew up with radio and really thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, we're going to have a great uh, lineup this morning to talk about some really important issues uh, in the news and in the culture. But I first wanted to spend a little time talking about something that a lot of us have been talking about, uh, and that is uh, statues, right? There's been a lot of conversation and argument about uh, the kind of statues that we have dotting our landscape here in America, in our cities, in our towns. Um, I have an opinion on that. I think uh, that statues uh, for uh, Confederate heroes uh, really should not be up. I think, you know, the Confederate army uh, was an insurrectionist army against the United States. They lost the war. They, they, um, They fought to keep the system of chattel slavery in place. Um, so I really think it's it's a good time for those to come down. And there, there's a lot of conversation about that. There's also conversation about statues um, that uh, of men who may have had a mixed legacy that uh, they, they uh, did some great things for the United States, our founders and others, but then also had some serious flaws and stood for things that today we look back and say, we ask, how can they do that? And I have, I'm of the opinion that those should stay up, that we should wrestle with that mixed legacy and wrestle with those. But I actually want to say there's one uh, person I think we should have more statues of. And uh, it's interesting to me when you go in many places around the United States, there's statues of uh, um, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Uh, but there's not as many statues. There are some, but not as many of uh, the man who defeated him, uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And uh, there's been kind of a renaissance of late of people appreciating um, the contribution that Ulysses S. Grant gave to our country. Uh, he was the winning general in the Civil War uh, with brilliant um, uh, strategy and determination. Uh, he also was a committed abolitionist. Uh, as president, he really fought for black suffrage. He took on the KKK. Uh, he was a kind-hearted man. He was a devoted uh, Methodist Christian. Uh, he overcame alcoholism and uh, loved his wife. And for a time, he was really considered a, a, an American hero on the level of a George Washington. And then in the 20th century, uh, it seems like his uh, reputation faded as um, I think the South in many ways rewrote Civil War history. I'm glad he's being reappreciated. Uh, if you have time, I would encourage you and your family to watch the, the um, 
History Channel series called Grand. It's a three-part series. It's excellent. It's uh, produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, and um, the executive editor is Ron Chernow, who has a great biography of Grant that I also recommend. It's 800 pages, but uh, you can do it. You can listen to it. I, I, I really enjoy it. But I would like to see more statues to Grant and more appreciation of him. Uh, he he defeated the, the the South in the Civil War. He was committed to end slavery. He passed civil rights legislation. Uh, he's an American hero. I think we should we should memorialize. And so, as we think about these things, uh, let's let's try to memorialize people that we would be proud of through our history. So that's my uh, hot take to to lead off this morning. But I'm glad to be here with you on the radio. Uh, Mornings with Carmen. This is Dan Darling. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back to Faith Radio here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm so glad to be with you on the radio. This is Dan Darling, Vice President of Communications for the National Religious Broadcasters, and I'm glad to have on the line with me my former colleague uh, at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, where he serves as the Vice President of Public Policy and Legal Counsel, uh, Travis Wusso. Travis, thanks for joining me this morning. Good to hear your voice. Oh, there he is. Hey, Travis. Thanks for being with me this morning. So, uh, I want to uh, talk about a couple of Supreme Court decisions, and then there's a few that are coming up uh, that we're anticipating. This is the time of year, of course, where all of us eagerly sit around waiting and refreshing uh, SCOTUS blog, waiting for the new decisions to come down. Um, but let's first talk about the the one that uh, everyone's been discussing is the Bostock decision on, um, on gender. Uh, and I've read uh, several different takes on it, uh, some that are very worried that this could spell uh, trouble for religious liberty, some who have said that there's uh, sufficient carve-outs for religious liberty. I would like for you to kind of give us your take on kind of where do you think this is headed? Yeah, I think, you know, to, to some extent, it's it's a little bit too early to tell. I think the cases that are are we're still waiting on, there are two big religious liberty cases that we're, wait, we're still waiting on. Uh, are going to give us some of those answers in terms of what's what's coming, uh, what's coming uh, down the pike for us, and how you know just how concerned uh, we need to be. Um, but I think, you know, look, I think, um, you know, you you can't uh, you can't overstate how significant the decision uh, was. Um, it it is it's certainly going to have implications for other areas of the civil of civil rights law, um, not just. In employment, but also in housing, possibly in higher education, uh, and then you know Justice Alito in his dissent lists a hundred, a uh, hundred or more uh, civil rights statutes that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, which are now you know the meaning of those the meaning of those statutes um, are are now in question. So, you know, again, I I think you you know you can't overstate how. Uh, how significant this is, and there, you know, there are a lot of lawyers way smarter than me trying to, you know, trying to understand, you know, what all this means, and 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 how do we respond to it? How do we how do we react to it? Um, you know, and as you pointed out, how do we make sure and that uh, that 
the religious liberty protections that we we currently enjoy are strong and fortified uh, and protected. There is some argument that perhaps you know Gorsuch and and others uh, who uh, were in the in, in the majority, kind of calling out uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and calling it a super statute that that kind of gives some hooks for the next set of decisions. Uh, do you think that's likely, or, or is it just kind of a wait and see game? Uh, even in this term, as we wait for other cases to come down, you know, I th- I thought the reference to Riffer was was an interesting uh, was an interesting one. Um, you know, the the big Riffer cases that we've seen, you know, the most famous of which, of course, is the Hobby Lobby decision and uh, and Little Sisters of the Poor, which dealt with the contraceptive mandate, the a decision by the federal government to make. Uh, uh, to make all uh, employers pay for contraception through healthcare, and you know that that is you know that I, I would argue that that's a questionable government interest uh, to begin with. What we're talking about here is the government's interest in you know stopping uh, what it considers to be discrimination or unjust discrimination, and so you know there really is not a lot of case law where where you see RIFRA. Uh, being used to overturn an anti-discrimination statute. And there's a couple of cases. There's there's a couple of cases in the Second Circuit. So, you know, I thought that was an interesting reference that that Gorsuch would would uh, that Justice Gorsuch would mention that in this context because um, you know normally when uh, when uh, you know organizations or individuals are able to you know find an exemption from uh, from uh, anti-discrimination laws, you know, it's under Constitutional grounds, uh, rather mm-hmm. than uh, rather than RIFRA. So, you know, I, I, it's it, it was an interesting breadcrumb. Um, I I'm not sure that it leads anywhere, but uh, but it certainly has a lot of us thinking about what it could mean. Yeah, it's definitely something to be watching in the next few weeks as some of these uh, other cases involving religious liberty come down. We're go- we're going to be back after this break. This is Dan Darling on Faith Radio uh, here. Uh, filling in for Carmen LeBurge on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be back with Travis Wusso from the ERLC after this break. Welcome back to Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. Uh, I'm Dan Darling filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning and glad to be with you. And we're continuing our conversation with my friend and former colleague, Travis Wusso, who is Vice President of Public Policy and Legal Counsel at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's joining me from the nation's capital there in D.C. And we're talking about some of the recent Supreme Court cases. We talked about the Bostock case uh, that had to deal with um, gender and sex uh, discrimination. But I want to pivot and talk a little bit about... um, a couple of the cases that came down that had to do with immigration, particularly the one uh, that dealt with the DACA program, which if, you know, if people aren't familiar with this, this is the program that helped um, you know, that uh, President Obama initiated, that President Trump tried to overturn, that helped uh, the children of, of illegal immigrants, the children who came here through no fault of their own as minors and try to get them on a path, at least to legalization, if not citizenship something that most of the country, I think, was in favor of. Um, so there's a decision that came down that said uh, President Trump's overturning of that decision, the way that he did it, uh, was not uh, in accordance with the law. So, Travis, if you could explain the parameters here, it seems there's there's a, 
you know, obviously good news for those Docker recipients uh, that they have a little bit of stability and security, but it's kind of a tenuous decision, right? Until Congress acts. Well, I mean, yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I, what you laid out is, is, is spot on. Um, but it's not just Congress that can act. It's also the administration. So, you know, one of, one of the, you know, one of the wrinkles within that case is that nobody disputes that the administration can end DACA. You know, what this case has had to do with was the way in which the, uh, the administration uh, ended the DACA program. So, you know, as you point out, I mean, it, it provides a measure of security for, you know, for the, you know, six or 700,000 or so DACA recipients, uh, you know, to be able to continue to work and, and uh, support their families, uh, contribute to their communities. But, you know, the, the reality is, uh, you know, the administration could take action. Uh, the president signaled that, that they were looking, uh, looking into this. You know, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know how serious that is in an election year, but it's, it's certainly something that we're, we're paying attention to. But, you know, of course, uh, it's it's up to Congress to provide a permanent solution for for this group of immigrants uh, who you know as you pointed out Dan um, you know they were brought here by their parents it wasn't a decision that they made they broke no law um, you know they're 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 a special case and so we need to treat them in a special way but you know not only does Congress need to deal with this with this group of immigrants they need to deal with our immigration system as a whole mm. which which is broken it's it is it is unjust it leaves our borders insecure. Um, and, and Congress needs to take this issue up and deal with it. It does seem this is part of a larger problem too, Travis, is it not, of Congress being unable to deal with difficult issues and then sort of ceding authority to the executive branch, to the administration, and, and in some ways to the Supreme Court waiting for them to kind of rule on things. And even when uh, President Obama, I think, meaning well, did the executive order initially, I think there was some hesitation even on the part of folks who were in favor of uh, legislation to protect dreamers that this would kind of make it a football where administrations could bat it back and forth. So uh, why is it that, you know, obviously this is a larger issue for a, you know, we could talk about for hours and hours, <laughs> but why is it that Congress is unwilling to kind of dive in there and uh, get their heads together and create a solution? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's, there's a way to answer that question without looking at the bigger picture. And, um, you know, I, I think Yuval Levin, uh, in his most recent book about institutions is called, which is called the time to build, you know, provides, you know, provides a, a, you know, as, as complete an answer as, as one answer can be to this question, which is, you know, Congress for a long time has stopped being a place where, where people go, uh, to get things done. Um, it's a place where people go to perform, to get on TV, to do, uh, you know, to do uh, cable news hits and, um, you know, and not really legislate. I mean, we're, you know, we are we're in a spot. I mean, there it, it's it's true that there is a lot of bipartisan legislation that's moving, you know, uh, that's moving every day that is under the radar uh, that, you know, deals with issues that are important to Americans. That is true. Um, but in terms of the big pieces of legislation tackling the big problems, you know, Congress basically only does it once a year. The appropriations bills that that now do a lot more than appropriation. They they legislate through uh, through those through those bills. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a difficult institutional problem that can't be solved overnight. It's it's going to you know require a change in in culture in D.C. and it's also going to require a change in culture from constituents to demand more and better uh, from people that they send to Washington. Yeah, that last part is something that 
I wanted to ask you about, you know, because in some ways it's easy for us to kind of throw stones at, at the nation's capital and be like, you know, it's, it's a swamp and we need to just, you know, get new politicians and maybe we do. Uh, but are, are they, are they not just kind of reacting to what we tell them to do? It, it does seem that they're reacting to this uh, spirit in the country that, you know, both sides kind of dig in and don't, don't want to give in. There's not a, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of appetite among uh, voters for people who say, okay, I'm going to fight uh, for everything I can, but then I'm going to make make a deal and work with the other side. And so what what should we as Christians be thinking when we when we vote, when we encourage our, our local officials? Uh, obviously, we have sets of issues that we care about, but should we always be in, or should we be encouraging them to kind of uh, compromise a little bit? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think the answer to that is, you know, is certainly yes. I mean, if, if, if as, if as a constituent, we always expect to get a hundred percent of what we want, um, most of the time we're going to get zero percent of what we want because there's, there's another side, uh, to most of the issues that we care about. Um, you know, there, of course, are some issues that we can't compromise on. There are some principles that we can't compromise. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think that we've got to be clear about what those are, you know, and what those aren't. You know, the other thing I'll say is this, and this is an old hobby horse of mine, but, you know, I think, I think as Christians, we think about our engagement and interaction with politics as something that happens every four years or maybe every two years if we're really active mm. uh, or even every year. And um, the reality is, I, I think as, as, as Christians, we need to be thinking about how we can engage our elected officials year round. Uh, build a relationship with, you know, if, if you're, you know, your chances are uh, your senator and your representative has a state office that's, you know, somewhere pretty close to where you live, at least in your city. Um, get to know those folks, uh, build a relationship with them. Um, and don't just talk to them when you don't like something, but let them know when there's something that you do. Uh, if, you know, if you're interested in politics, you know, that that's one of the best ways uh, to engage is, is to, you know, build that kind of relationship and build that kind of trust when you're, you know, during recess, when you know that your elected official is, is, uh, is back in your district, show up to their events, show up to their town halls, get to know them. They want to hear from you. Um, and it's through that kind of engagement that we, you know, we're, we're going to produce uh, a better kind of results that, that, you know, that goes beyond, uh, this sort of performative aspect that, you know, that leads up to a culmination every two or four years. Yeah, that's a good word. So you're saying uh, ranting all day on Facebook is is less effective than actually getting to know uh, legislators and and and, and public officials. Uh, you know, I'm I'm told people change their minds that way, but I I have just I I, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen any evidence of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's such a good word, Travis. And and really, you know, I, I think one of the things that surprised me what uh in our, in our work in dc is just uh you know there's kind of a vision of of what dc is but when you're there there are a lot of really good people working behind the scenes a lot of christians working at different levels of uh administration and uh on congressional staffs and the media think tanks and so uh i think our our vision of what dc is maybe should change a little bit shouldn't it absolutely yeah come on come on down get to know your uh, you know, meet, meet with, uh, meet with your senators, meet with your representative, um, and, uh, get to know the people who, uh, who work for them. 
Yeah, that's a good word. Well, Travis Wusso, I appreciate you joining me. Travis is a former colleague. We served together at the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is Southern Baptist entity. If you want to know more about him, you can go to ERLC.com and read his work there. I encourage you to follow uh, what he's saying, particularly in these next few weeks as Supreme Court cases uh, come down in his analysis. Travis, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Man, thanks for having me. It's good to hear your voice, Dan. Let's get together soon. And thank you all for joining us here on Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Dan Darling. We will be back with more conversation after this short break. Welcome back to Faith Radio. This is Dan Darling filling in here for Carmen LeBurge on Mornings with Carmen. Glad to have you here on the radio. Uh, Coming up after this news break, we're going to talk with my friend Chris Martin, who works at Lifeway Christian Resources. Chris is an expert on all things social media and kind of how we should think about our consumption of it and whether or not social media is neutral. Uh, Really important questions for us to think about. So join us on the other side here on Faith Radio. This is Dan Darling on Mornings with Carmen. It's normal for your teen to make immature decisions. But if she started making self-destructive choices, it's time to get some outside help. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Divorce, abuse, death in the family, or childhood trauma, just about anything can trigger a sudden explosion during adolescence. Most teens haven't developed skills they need to handle their emotions, so they turn to dangerous and destructive behaviors in an effort to dull the pain. I know that moms and dads feel crushed by such behavior from their teen, but sometimes only a professional counselor can bring the underlying cause to the surface. Have you noticed a drastic change in your child's behavior? You can't afford to wait. Get your teen the help he needs today. Parenting teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to Faith Radio. Uh, This is Dan Darling here on Mornings with Carmen, filling in for Carmen LeBurge. Glad to be with you here on the radio. And I have joining me on the line uh, my good friend, uh, Chris Martin, who is with Lifeway Christian Resources. Chris, thanks thanks for joining me. Of course. Good to talk to you, Dan. So Chris is uh, a friend and a fellow Cubs fan. So we we do want to talk very seriously about some of the things uh, that he has been writing about on social media. But before we do that, we really need to talk about baseball being back or is it back? Uh, So Chris, uh, do you, do you actually believe we'll see games this year? Man, the, the ink is finally dry on the agreement between the major league baseball owners and the players. So that part, the, the biggest hurdle has been jumped, which nobody, which which I didn't think was actually going to happen. A lot of people, it seemed like every other day on social media, uh, Major League Baseball officials would say, we definitely think it's going to happen. And then the next day they would say, we're not sure if this is going to happen. And um, it's been it's been a bummer to not have baseball so far this year. But but now there's, you know, there are some games that are supposed to start in just a couple days, less than one month. And I Hmm. really, really want to believe it's going to happen. But man, if there's anything I've learned this year, it's that there's a whole lot that can happen in a month, and uh, I'm I'm 
I will believe baseball is back when I see players playing against each other on the field. But I'm excited at the prospect, and it's I really hope it comes about. Yeah, I am too. Even though they're going to have a DH in both leagues, which I'll I'll just deal with. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited about it too. But it's kind of like being a Cubs fan where you don't really believe you won the championship until it actually happens. And then you're like, okay, it's okay to be happy. Um, exactly. So that's yes. kind of like how we feel about baseball. Well, Chris, I want to talk to you about you. You've been writing uh, quite a bit on uh, social media and, and for a long time and have some really interesting insights on this. And you had a newsletter recently. So if, if people aren't familiar, Chris has a great newsletter called terms of service that you can sign up for. You can subscribe to. And I, Highly recommend it because he has insights in there that really nobody else has. Uh, but one uh, of your latest ones, you talked about kids, uh, teenagers, and the effect that uh, social media have on teenagers, particularly this idea that they're always in the hallway. What did you mean by that? Sure. So there's a great uh, quote uh, in a in a Jean-Paul Sartre uh, drama from his character named Garcin says, uh, hell is other people. And it sounds like just a really uh, um, misanthropic quote about, uh, it sounds like something an introvert might say, or or like, man, I just really hate being around other people. But what the character means is um, it, it's, it's really terrible to feel like you're always being watched. And that's a quote that I found when reading a book on on the effects of surveillance and social media on our lives and our mental health and things like that. And it reminded me of, a, of another book quote that I read one time about how it feels like today we're always we're just always being watched we're always in the hallway at school and and I kind of extended extended that metaphor um I work with teenagers I lead the youth ministry at my church um about 20 to 30 middle and high schoolers on any given week and um I'm noticing just anecdotally this effect of social media on their lives so to to explain this illustration um you know, when I was in high school, social media was actually a thing. MySpace and Facebook were actually around when I was in high school, but we didn't have smartphones really. The iPhone came out when I was a junior in high school, and most people, even though Blackberries existed or whatever, most most high schoolers in my high school did not have those things. So when we left school, you know, when you're at school, yeah, there's some socialization, obviously, that happens in classrooms, much to teachers' dismay. But most of the socialization in high school takes place in the hallways in between class or perhaps in the lunchroom at the lunch table. And so that's where you're kind of putting on a show. You know, you're 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 uh, strutting around, as it were, and, and trying to either show off for girls or impress your friends or whatever else. It's, it's really it's the it's the uh, runway uh, for high schoolers to kind of show off who they are and, and to make a social uh, reputation for themselves. But. When Dan, you were in high school, and largely when I was in high school, when you went home, you left that runway. You left the hallway. Mm -hmm. The social pressures that come with always being watched and evaluated and judged, unless you were going to a social event, when you went home for the evening, you got to kind of – you went backstage, as it were. You got to go off stage, live however you wanted to live, not worry about if people were judging you, not worry about – if people were deciding whether you were cool or not cool or whatever else. Well, today, uh, teenagers are always in the hallway. The social pressure that comes with performing for their peers in the hallways at school or at the lunchroom, mm -hmm. like you and I used to face, it's obviously incredibly exhausting. And teenagers today cannot escape it. 
um, because they're always carrying the stage around in their pockets and they're always performing for their peers. And here's the thing. It's not there's a temptation, I think, especially among older people, perhaps even parents of teenagers to just say, well, just don't use social media. Just just log off completely. And like, yeah, idealistically, that might be a solution. But it's it's a form of social suicide, as it were, to, for for a teenager to not participate in social media. The so much of the social experience, so much of the um, building of social engagement, the building of relationships happens on social media as a sort of form of extension of the in person physical relationship that people have at school or at work or wherever else. And so I think it's really important for anyone who interacts with teenagers or maybe just like looks at teenagers with disdain today or something like that and recognize that the teenagers today are enduring a sort of social pressure that literally none of us have ever had to like, there's nothing new under the sun as Ecclesiastes says, but this is about as close as I've gotten. (laughs) Um, Mm. They're just they're experiencing the same social pressure that you and I and anyone listening experienced, but they can simply never escape it. And if I don't know about you, I, I, I would not go back to my high school hallway if I had a choice. And so the idea mm-hmm. of having to experience it constantly throughout the four years of my high school experience is terrifying to me. And unfortunately, that's the reality, the sort of social reality that a lot of our teenagers are facing today. Yeah, that that's such a good word. You know, I think of a, a book I read, uh, I think last year, year before, called iGen, which really surveyed. It was by Gene Twenge, surveyed um, kind of the the effect of social media on this generation, and it's not great. Um, and and one more thing about that hallway that I was thinking about as you were talking, not only can you not escape the hallway, Chris, but it seems like you c- can never escape it. So, you know, whatever you said or did 10, 15, 10 years ago on social as a teenager in the hallway could come back to bite you later. So it seems like it's, it's really, um, it's really having this impact on kids. I want to talk more about this uh, with, with Chris Martin uh, of Lifeway Social. We're here with uh, on Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen. This is Dan Darling. When, when we come back from the break, I want to ask Chris a little bit more about the effect of social media on us, even as adults, and kind of the performative aspect that it forces us to have. So join us uh, back here on Faith Radio after the other side of this break. Welcome back to Faith Radio. This is Dan Darling, Vice Pres- Senior Vice President at the National Religious Broadcasters, filling in for my good friend Carmen LeBurge here on Mornings with Carmen. Glad to be with you on the radio. And uh, we're continuing our conversation with Chris Martin from uh, Lifeway Christian Resources. And Chris and I are talking about social media and sort of it's uh, the good and bad, but really the impact it's having uh, on teens and, and adults. And Chris, I wanted to... Uh, lean in a little bit on the end of our conversation there. Um, There's one thing you said in your, in your newsletter uh, that, that really resonates with me, this idea that we're always on stage. Uh, Social media has given everybody a platform. And I write about this a little bit in my book that's coming out in August, uh, away with words um, that uh, I, I don't know that's, that's good for our souls. And it, we can kind of almost try to find our worth in the way we perform online. And you are very invested in that conversation. Uh, talk to us, talk to us about that. 
Yeah. So I think um, I'm actually I'm writing a book on social media. It's funny. We were just talking about this in the during the break uh, that's coming out in, in just over a year. And I think um, I just started writing it. And the first chapter I wrote was in the heart of the book is is um, five, five. Right now it's five could expand five lies we believe when we uh, kind of live our lives on the social Internet. So I think most of us are addicted to social media in some capacity. May not be may not be uh, destroying our lives like some addictions do, but it's definitely affecting a lot of our lives. And um, and I think we believe a number of lies when we spend too much time online. And one of the lies I think we believe is that uh, is that attention is the barometer of worth. That if something gets a lot of attention it's more important or somehow contains more value than things that don't get attention. So we have this sort of high view, like going viral is like the pinnacle of the internet experience. Like uh, I can't tell you the number of meetings I've been in where people are like, what can we do to go viral? And it's like, well, that's not the <laughs> point. Um, the, it just, it feels like we've ascribed a lot of value to attention and, and that's true. I mean, it's, it's a undeniable reality. And the, the sad part is, is under any good lie is a kernel of truth. There's an incredible amount of value attached to attention because if you just look at the attention economy, the attention industry, uh, the social media companies and including Google, which is a social media company, even though we don't think of it that way, are making more money than just about any companies in history by selling our attention. So attention is valuable in one sense, but it isn't in another. And I think what a lot of us do uh, when, when we get into this unhealthy relationship with social media is um, at first it just starts out as interest. We log on to Facebook or Twitter or wherever else because we want to see what's going on in the world and our friends' lives, share with other people what's going on in the world or our friends' lives. But eventually I think what we can get into is we can – we can start to want attention more than anything else. I think part of that is sin. And the other thing I think is I think the platforms encourage us to want attention more than anything else. And unfortunately, um, so so attention is a currency. It's also kind of like a drug. It's kind of both. And for a lot of us, we don't feel like we get, we would never maybe say this, though sometimes in fits of rage with a spouse or a child or a coworker, we may say it, um, that we don't feel like we get enough attention. You know, uh, I have a newborn daughter and I love her, uh, but man, she doesn't read my blog posts or all she, you know, all she does is scream and poop on herself or whatever. And we just feel like we're unappreciated. We feel like we don't get the attention we should be getting. And so we go online and we want to find attention there. And unfortunately, on the internet, on social, on the social internet specifically, one of the best ways to get attention is to be a jerk. And to be a mm. jerk on the internet, I mean, if you want to get attention, just go be mean to people. People will pay you plenty of attention because nobody likes to be uh, attacked, uh, and and they'll fight mm. back. And so, if you really, I think, I think what has happened to summarize is a lot of us are joy poor, and we want to be attention rich. And in order to be attention rich. Mm. We have to fight with a lot of people. And so it's really that whole idea has reframed how, you know, you know, the work I do at Lifeway, I'm looking at social media mm -hmm. almost all day, kind of seeing what's going on in the Christian world as a, as a part of my job. And you and I both know, as you've written in your book, there's a lot of fighting that goes on, especially within the Christian space. And in the past, I've just attributed that to, man, people are just mean and sin has, this is one of the consequences of sin. And that's certainly true. But I think this whole research and all the all the reading I've done on attention, I think what it's helped me do is almost 
come with a, a different angle, different eye and say, man, I think a lot of these people just might not feel like they're getting enough attention in real mm -hmm. offline life. And they've figured out that the way to get the most attention here is to just put up a fight all the time. And that feeds their addiction more and they engage more. And it's just kind of this loop and, and this cycle that continues. That, that's such a good word. I mean, uh, this idea of attention versus joy. And I think uh, it, it also has to do, Chris, right, with uh, at, at the end of the day, how, how we think about ourselves. And uh, I read a great book last year uh, called um, The Soul of Shame. And he talks about the most important thing is to, is to know God and be known by God. And it seems like there's a desire for us to want to curate a version of ourselves uh, that maybe fills in the gaps where we feel we're incomplete, that if we curate this version of ourselves online, that we'll get favor from kind of a tribe uh, instead of just resting in this idea that God loves us for the real person we are, the, the person who maybe is not as courageous as we play act online or not as put together as we curate on Instagram or whatever. Do you think that has a, a, a piece of this as well? Yeah, for sure. And to your point, I, I'm not going to get the quote exactly. You said the the greatest kind of desire of the human heart is to know God and be known by God. And I think um, when you realize that a lot of us think we're God, that mm. oversharing and constantly giving our opinions on social media, um, because none of us would say I am God, but in our idolatry of ourselves, we we operate like we are God to so if the greatest joy in life or the greatest desire in life is to know God and be known by God, well, then certainly the greatest joy in other people's lives is to know who I am and be known by me. And so I mm. think that colors that that in this inherent sin of idolatry colors how we use social media a lot. We want people to know us and be known by us because what greater joy in there is, is there in the world than that? And sometimes you, you kind of want to tell people when you read stuff people post – you know, there's this kind of performative activism or performance, uh, perf uh, performance going on. You, you, you sometimes just want to say to people, you know, you don't have to do this to be loved. You don't have to be this way that, you know, God loves you for who you really are. There's a faith, there's a community of faith in your local church that likely sees you for who you really are and loves you that way. You don't have to sort of be on this performance treadmill. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we all have a, we, you know, for every aspect of life, we have a default switch set in us, um, and sin has corrupted that default switch. So if we engage in social media without doing so intentionally and thinking and thinking about how is this affecting me beyond just consuming content or watching funny cat videos or getting in arguments, if we don't kind of step back away from ourselves, have a you know like take an out of body experience, like get out of our own head, look back, st step back, look at our own lives and say, how is this affecting me beyond just the sole engagement that I'm having online? We would realize that a lot of us are just operating on our default mode, which is corrupted by sin. And I think a lot of us have to think more intentionally about how we're going to use social media and not fall into the default mode. Mm, that's such a good word. Well, Chris, uh, Martin, thank you for joining us today, and I uh, really want to encourage folks to uh, check out his newsletter. It's called Terms of Service. Uh, you can look it up and subscribe to it, and we'll be really eagerly anticipating this book uh, coming out next year on social media. Chris Martin, thanks for joining us, uh, and thank you for joining us here on Faith Radio. Uh, Mornings with Carmen, this is Dan Darling. We'll be back with more after this break.
Welcome back here to Faith Radio. This is Dan Darling, uh, Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Religious Broadcasters. I'm filling in today for my friend Carmen LeBurge here on Mornings with Carmen. And uh, we've had an hour of great uh, conversation uh, with Travis Wusso talking about some of the Supreme Court cases. And then uh, just with Chris Martin from Lifeway talking about social media. And I wanted to... Uh, put a bow a little bit on my conversation with Chris when it talks about when we talked about social media and kind of the the sort of pull it has on our hearts. You know, I, I wrote about this a little bit in my book that's coming out. It's called Away With Words coming out from B&H. Uh, you can pre-order it now if you go to awaywithwords.com. But one of the things I was really thinking about is the way that we try to curate a version of ourselves online, that we, we're performing and uh, this is why you see behaviors of people being angry or kind of saying things or maybe even playing the victim card in some respects. There's this idea of wanting to be noticed and wanting to be a thing, <clears throat> wanting to compensate for something we feel is missing. And really, the, the gospel has good news for us that Jesus died for us while we were sinners, that God sees us, the real version of us, not the one we curate online. So I want to encourage you today to find your rest in Jesus. We're going to be Mac back on the other side of this news break with more content here on Faith Radio. This is Dan Darling filling in for Carmen LeBurge on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.